The scripture reading this morning comes from Ruth, chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. You can find it on page 224 in your pew Bible. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The word of our Lord. Hey, I wonder if you can sort of dig back into your time in grade school or, or maybe when you were taking a literature class and remember a literary device known as the double entendre. It's a French phrase meaning a double meaning, and it's usually used where there's, there's an apparent meaning to the words that you're reading on the page, but there's a suggested deeper meaning that sort of rests underneath it. Authors will use it as a literary device to sort of introduce deeper meaning into the action. Let me throw out a couple of examples. One of those famous ones is from the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, where you've got Odysseus who faces the great creature, the Cyclops. And the Cyclops asks Odysseus his name. He says, well, my name is No Man. And the Cyclops believes him. And when all of a sudden uh, Odysseus mortally wounds the Cyclops, he screams to his fellow friends, no man is trying to hurt me. No man is trying to kill me in which case they ignore his pleas because no man is doing it. You see the point. My favorite uh, double entendres are the, are the accidental ones, uh, which mostly occur in like newspaper headlines. These are wildly entertaining to me. Um, children make nutritious snacks. It takes a second, so you gotta, it comes over you. Uh, minors refuse to work after death. Criminals get nine months in violin case. Anyway, I remember my father. I remember my father when I was driving around, he used to sing that, um, that old Bellamy Brothers song, If I Said You Had a Beautiful Body, Would You Hold It Against Me? It's kind of fun. Nowadays, though, double entendre, see, again, it takes a second. Double entendre uh, actually has to be broadcast. It's a little bit of annoyance to me. Have you noticed how often people use the phrase, did you see what I did there? I was reading through the Washington Post a while back, and some, it was a sports writer who was writing, and he said, you know, but the, but the L.A. Chargers now presently have an electrifying offense. And then he had to say, did you see what I did there? As if we're all too ignorant to be like, oh, Chargers, electricity. Oh, now I got it. But let's be honest, there are some double entendres that really do require an explanation. And I think we have just such a passage here this morning in the book of Ruth. Because we're starting this series, like Brian said, through the life of David. And we've entitled it Secure in the King, Stories from the Life of David. And what we're going to see here is that David's rise to power has its origins from all the way back to his great-grandmother, 
a woman by the name of Ruth that we have named in the story here. But for most of us, whenever we go back to Old Testament stories like Ruth, we don't always really know what to do with these things, do we? And so typically the most, the most obvious way of approaching them is to look at them as if they're just morality tales. That is, we see the life of Ruth and we're like, wow, what's it? didn't she do a good job? We should be like Ruth. Um, but that's actually not, I think, what's going on here. Because I would submit that the message of the book of Ruth we want to dive into this morning is a massive double entendre that unpacks for us the origins of exactly what it is that David is coming to bring. In other words, you can look at the book of Ruth very superficially, or you can see what God is doing on a larger scale, a grander scale, to show exactly what's going on in his kingdom. And I think something, it also ends up being, interestingly enough, much more transformational than if people just say, hey, look, go be like Ruth. Something profound happens. And I want to unpack this through a few different ways. Number one, we want to look at the connections with the past, how we got to the book of Ruth, see the shadows of the king as we see the characters laid out, and then finally ask about some application for us today as it turns relevant. So let's dive in this. Look, in the interest of time, we only read the last few verses of this book, but you got to do a little digging and review of the whole book before you really see how it sets us up for the meaning behind the life of David. And as it turns out, for our benefit, the story kind of picks up right where we left off in our series through Genesis. Go back into your brains only a month ago, right? When we were studying at the end of Abraham's life, especially in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, how God had chosen Abraham to be the one who would be the launching pad for a great worldwide healing. We talked a lot about at that time that God placed this very significant importance on the offspring of Abraham, on his children, so much so that he literally declares all human wombs and the male parts that would impregnate them to be sacred in his eyes. The reason why it's sacred is because of the promise he made all the way back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sin and fall, God graciously promises that he's going to undo that rebellion. How? By bringing an heir, by bringing a lineage, or to use Genesis 3's language, by bringing a seed. Hey, hold that thought. That's really important in just a second. So he approaches Abraham, God does, with this promise, this, this covenant like we called it in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. He sums it up a couple verses later in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Okay, pause there for a second. As you can see, there are two key features to the promise that God makes to Abraham. Number one, you're going to have a family. That is, there's going to be someone that's going to come from you. There's going to be a heritage, a, a long lineage that's going to go on and on, so much so that you're going to be a great nation one day. The Old Testament way of putting it was to put it this way, was to say, you are going, I'm going to give you, Abraham, a life-producing seed that's going to be carried on indefinitely until the promised one arrives and fulfills it all. That's the first one, that there's a, that there's a family. 
Secondly, though, he promises a land. Remember, we talked about this back in Genesis. Land was about the most valuable thing that you could have in your family if you were part of an ancient Near Eastern society. It was a picture of God's provision and dominion, a place of his rule where you could flourish and discover all the things that he's implanted there. And so God sums up these two promises in Genesis 15, 18 by saying, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. So you see the two promises? There's a seed and there's land. Those are the key features of what is going on in God's redemption story in the Old Testament. All right, fast forward then to the book of Ruth. Because the setting of the book of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. Now look, all of the things that God promised would happen to Abraham, they've actually all come true. Remember they would sojourn for a while and wander, and then they would go into Egypt and be imprisoned for like 400 years and finally be released. All of it happened just like God said. But God saved them, and finally they arrive in the land. They've made it. So everything should be rosy, right? Eh, never is that way, is it? Because within just a few generations, the people have started to rebel. Uh, and so that rebellion is cataloged for us. And quite frankly, one of the most graphic and gory books in the entire Bible, it's the book of Judges. You get amazing stories of, of lurid and violent acts that when you realize that God's people were, were treating each other this way, <laughs> You realize why the theme of the book of Judges is what it is. And everybody did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, Ruth is taking place in a time when the culture around them has gone nuts. No one was concerned for the truth. No one was considered, considered of God's law. Religion was waning. And if it existed at all, it would be corrupted by evil judges and uh, corrupt priests. Abram was promised that his descendants would be a blessing to the world. Your descendants, your offspring are going to fix the world. Now, his offspring are as bad as the world around him. They become just like the people who had used to imprison them. Okay, pause for a moment before we go to the next point. I think we need to pause there and remember something, and that is this. <clears throat> I think there's a lot of, um, a little bit of historical snobbery, if you will, that we say, when we say things like this, like, well, you know what? We are living in unprecedented times. Never in the history of the world has there been the kind of rebellion of human beings that we've had until late. And what we do is we spend a lot of time mimicking the, the sort of nervous hand-wringing that the world around us is doing because of the signs of the times. Look, the truth is every generation of people has had to face hardship and corruption and yes, even a declining church, we are not that special. But if, you also see, but if you learn to see these stories in the Bible through those lens, it'll also open up the hope that God was giving these people as well. Because in the midst of a declining culture, even like it was in the time of the judges, God's still at work. God is still moving, especially when things look like they are falling apart. And you want to know how he's doing it? He's doing it through the tiny little faithfulnesses of things that are totally off the radar of the watching world. Have nothing, no one had any idea what was going on in Bethlehem during this time. But here, God all of a sudden looks, and he looks down upon two hopeless widows. And he begins to take the next step in his process of bringing about a giant salvation. 
Okay? All right, so the first point is this. See how Ruth is connected to Adam and Eve, to the covenant with Abraham, and finally we're ready for David, which brings us to the shadows of the king. Because here we get to Ruth, and if you've never read it, like you're, it's worth you going home. It's just four chapters, reading through it. Uh, I always tell people the book of Ruth has a, it's a great combination. On the one hand, it's got some very deep, very challenging theological truth in it. But it's also very sentimental, very sweet, uh, romantic, if you will. A, a biblical hallmark movie, maybe. <laughs> Connecting with the people in his crowd, he knows, right? But think about the storyline of the book of Ruth. It opens up with this very random Jewish woman leaving the town of Bethlehem because there's no food there. Her name is Naomi. Naomi is married, and so she leaves with her husband and her two sons, each of which of them are also married. Well, as the story goes and they move away, all of the men in the family die. So mama and two daughters-in-law, left childless by the way, are, tr- are going to head back to Bethlehem uh, to try to find salvation. One of the daughters-in-law leaves, and so the whole action of the story surrounds Naomi and her daughter-in-law, a woman named Ruth. That's the story as it opens up. Ruth one twenty two sums it up by saying this. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. All right. Suddenly this is where you begin to get your first double meaning, the double entendre. And it actually is carried through almost the entire book. Because think about this. Naomi leaves the town of Bethlehem. Do you know what that name literally translated is it means the city of bread so she leaves Bethlehem without any grain for bread and ultimately loses her family as well so she neither has seed for food for barley but neither does she have a seed a lineage a heritage So there's this interplay between barley seed and seed. So which is it, Naomi? Do you need seed to eat or do you need seed for a heritage? Answer, both. So she goes back to Bethlehem. She hears there's grain there. So she enters there without a family, without any human seed, but she starts searching by searching for seeds. Do you see the interplay? It's telegraphing to us this little play on words that the action of Ruth, by the way, the whole book takes place in fields. You ever notice that? All of the action takes place in land <laughs> and talking about the seeds that are in that land and then mixing it with a conversation about who will carry on the name. You see the point? Suddenly in the context of these, the loneliness of these two childless widows, you get something amazing happens. And the amazing thing that happens is a guy by the name of Boaz. Boaz is a wonderful feature because Boaz shows his kindness because he begins uh, with helping Ruth by giving her what? Seed. (laughs) He leaves some barley for it that she can glean so that she can eat and be fed. But then again, as the story goes on, he falls in love. Boaz falls in love with Ruth and he brings him to herself and becomes honestly one of the most fascinating figures of the entire book. Because all of a sudden what you get in Boaz are these little hints of something bigger than what's going on. Remember, God is unfolding his promises. He's unfolding his promises about what he's going to do in the life of David. And here's this guy named Boaz. Let me tell you what happens in Ruth 3. In Ruth chapter 3, Boaz decides he's going to come and rescue Ruth 
through the, the, a law that was in the book of Leviticus about widows being able to be taken in by nearest family members. In other words, if you were a widow and you found yourself destitute with nothing to do, it was the responsibility of your husband's brother or cousin or near relative to come and bring you into their house to literally rescue you. That person was known as the kinsman redeemer. And so Boaz says, I will do that. But then the whole of chapter three is him suddenly realizing that there's one kinsman redeemer that's a little bit closer than he. And so all through there, he goes through and makes certain at every single point that he has not missed one step of the law. He follows it meticulously. Boaz cuts no corners in his prediction or in his protection of his new love and her mother-in-law. In other words, he meticulously follows the, the code for what's doing that. The second thing that Boaz does is, is he's able to bring Ruth into his family and restores to her the land that she, that she lost when her husband died. Again, land in that culture was security. And so what he does is he restores her future. He restores her fortunes. So what is Boaz starting to do? You know what he's doing? He's starting to act like a king. Boaz is acting like a king, which is the very attribute of the covenant that God is going to perform through his great-grandson as he unfolds it for Israel. You see these shadows of a king in Boaz. By the end of the book, by the way, he makes this big speech to, all of the, to the town hall. He says, then Boaz, chapter 4, verse 9, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech. That was Naomi's dead husband. And all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Those were the dead husbands of the two daughters, daughters-in-law. To perpetuate the name of the dead in this inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers, from the gate of this, his native place. You are witnesses to this day. Now, did you catch that? Because in that one speech, Boaz not only preserves Ruth and her mother-in-law, but he connects the promises that were made to Abraham to the present day. He said, look, God promised our forefather land and seed, a place of security and a heritage that would one day bring about the Messiah. And Boaz comes along and secures exactly the same thing. And what we're going to find out this semester is this. That's what a good king does. The king is there to fulfill all of those things. In other words, Boaz comes along and he perfectly keeps the law. He restores to this poor family a place to security and, to security and fortune and a future. And you want to know why he does it? Because he's in love. <laughs> That's the reason why. And so my question to you before we go to the last point is, that sound familiar to you at all? <laughs> it ought to. Because when we get to the point of trying to find application and relevance for today, we begin to see that, that our time is no different than what happened in those days. And so there's three questions as we get to the relevance for today point. There's three questions I want to have posed to you as we look at it. The first one is this. How important is a king when the culture around us goes crazy? I mean, remember, the time of the judges was a moral free-for-all. I promise you, whatever you've read in the newspapers or heard on the news this week, it was worse back then. It could give this, this generation a run for the money. Violence, deceit, sexual promiscuity. But not only is God not absent through it, he's actually working. 
But he's working not on the mass scale, but again, through the tiny faithfulnesses of this little brokenhearted family. Now, why do I think this is important? I simply want you to note as often as we can that this is the way God works. And I've grown in my old age to be suspicious of how we react as a church and as Christians when the culture wanes around us. Because this, to me, the sounds of the things that we say like, well, you know, it's time for us to take over. It is time for us to win back the culture by force if we have to. Even if the means by which we're going to win back the culture involve breaking God's expressed intentions in the law. This is what I hear in the newspapers. The Christians themselves are setting aside the very things that God tells us are the attributes of the kingdom so we can win again. That's not the pattern. That's not God's way. No, God is saying, I'm here to do amazing things through the faithfulness of a kindly man who fell in love with a young widow and cared for her and her family. My first application then is, do we have the same eyes about dealing with the culture that God does? Am I participating in the same level of panic? Walking around wondering what we're going to do? How we're going to mobilize to take over again? Or am I going to call to me to be faithful in the place that God has asked me to serve? In my little corner of his kingdom, am I being faithful there? Second question and second application. <laughs> Have you ever lived in Naomi's head in your lifetime? It's a broken widow, and she's pitiful. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 20, she says this. Listen to this. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. It's the Hebrew word for bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? Whoosh. There's a rawness to Naomi's mental state, isn't it? But my guess is for anybody in this room who's ever been in that particular headspace, isn't it a little bit encouraging to see somebody in the Bible who feels the same way? When all of a sudden everything starts to get wrecked around you and you see things falling around you and inside you do this, you look and be like, actually, God... You did this. This is on you. I'm here because you allowed it. What did I do wrong? Am I being punished for something because of where we are? In other words, it's very easy for us to turn on God himself and implicate him for our present troubles. Does he even care? In other words, Naomi's asking, can I have any security in life if he's not going to rescue me? And what's even more interesting is I don't want to rescue this morning and resolve that question for those of you that may be in that place this morning because I don't want to hand out some false assurances that, hey, you see, because Naomi was faithful, she got a good life. God fixed it all. I can't promise you that. Providence doesn't promise us that. But I will say this. If we are getting from Boaz a really good king, and pictures of someone who comes and protects and comes along. I do think that what a good king does is he comes along to us and he says, look, I can't explain it to you now, but I promise you when it's all said and done, I'm going to make it all right. I'm going to take all of these disparate elements. I'm going to take all of these little pieces where your life has taken turns that you never thought was coming. And I'm going to make it all right. I'm going to weave it together in something you couldn't even imagine right now. 
Somewhere in there is God's providence and a certainty that says, I know that what's going on is a God who cares for me. Hey, and and preview for coming attractions. (laughs) If that same king can actually conquer death as well, then even my own death cannot create a hindrance for God's determination to bless me at all costs. Hmm. Now that's security. Thirdly and finally, do you have, can you see Jesus in Boaz? That's the last one. we got to get here. Because there's such a profoundness here. But Boaz and Ruth get married and they have a child. Little Obed. Obed has a child eventually by the name of Jesse. Jesse has a bunch of sons. But the last of Jesse's sons is a guy by the name of David who will eventually be king. That's what the last passage we read was about. So what the author is showing us is how God is working throughout human history. Yes, to be the great friend of God, like he was to Abraham. Yes, to be the great giver of the law and terrifying from Mount Sinai, like he revealed himself to Moses. But now, in the next covenant that's coming, we find out he's a king. And there's two aspects to him being a king. Number one, he's going to govern with love, yes, but he is not going to skirt the law when he does so. That's the magic. (laughs) Don't you see that what Boaz does in his attention to detail is he shows us Jesus who is eventually going to come along and not look at our sin and brush it under the carpet. (laughs) Um, Like, well, let's just pretend like that didn't happen. It's not what Jesus did. Jesus came here not to primarily be an example for us or to us, but to win something on our behalf. By the way, that's how you know good rulers. Good rulers are the ones who live by the very laws they establish. Jesus meticulously followed the law. He never did anything wrong. Why? Because he was trying to build for us a record. A, a, a platform, as it were, from which God would judge us on his, from his record. Why? Jesus does all of that. Jesus goes to those amazing links for one reason, one reason only. It's because he's in love. Just like Boaz. Don't you see at the root of this story about a coming king is also a love story about a man who falls in love with a broken down widow We've entitled this series. That's the reason why we called the series Secure in the King. Because as we look at David, we have to realize that you can't understand David until you go back to his great-grandmother and realize that God was working through a very loving man and working out providentially what was going to happen. Who's not going to skirt the law, but do it all right. And he's going to come and bring about a salvation for everybody. Hey, you know what? That's still the way the king works. That's still the way the king works. Okay, so um, if you've ever read or had to be, were forced to read uh, the, the Divine Comedy by Dante, did you ever do that when you were in school? There's a great story that Dante talks about, about being madly in love with a character named Beatrice. Remember Beatrice? You know, the interesting thing about Dante's relationship with this woman is he only met the woman twice, never laid a hand on her, but only met her and saw her. The first time, he was like nine years old and Beatrice was eight. And he was absolutely captivated by her emerald eyes. He would only see her later on when they were adults after passing them in a street. And he saw her from across the way in their, in their early 20s uh, in, in, in actually Florence, Italy. I had a chance back last summer when I was visiting Italy to be able to walk the street that Dante did as he looked over and saw Beatrice. Well, Beatrice died at age 24 in 1290, I think. 
uh, with Dante again, never really ever seeing her again. But she forever haunted his writings afterwards. You get these statements like this. Dante would say, she was the glorious lady of my mind. He said, she is my beatitude. I love this line. The destroyer of all vices and the queen of virtue. She was my salvation. Now look, there's a lot of ways you could go with that. I simply want you to note from Dante that we have, we have written evidence, almost 1,500 years old, by the way, 1,000 years old, of evidence of what happens when love takes someone over and begins to transform them in the process. Or if not transform someone, empower them. Right? Why was it that Jesus was willing to go to the cross? But the, 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 the New Testament answers that question for us. But... For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. Well, what was that joy? You say, what well, was fellowship with the Father? He already had that. What is the joy that was set before Jesus in coming to pursue our salvation that got him on the cross? Ready for this? It was you. Because that's what happens when someone's in love. And the powerful thing about the life of David that we're going to find out is, is you got to have both. <laughs> it's one thing to have a king. It's one thing to have a king who rules and reigns and corrects and, and judges and brings about truth. But it's a whole other thing if you're married to that king. Because if I can combine those two things, both a king and the lover in the same thing, We'll get aspects of how Jesus loves us that's absolutely transformational and very well could create that same love in us that would be for us the destroyer of all vices and the queen of virtue. That's what Jesus does. And as we dive into the life of David, that's where we're headed. So my invitation this morning is, hey, come along with us. We're going to build on it week by week until finally in the end we're going to look back and see the king that Jesus has come to be for us. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you lead us into it, guide us in your word, help us to stick close to the text, help us to find exactly how it fits in with the context, because we know all throughout we find Jesus, and Jesus is the great lover of our souls. And so as that great lover, we pray that you would draw near to us even this morning in comfort. Father, perhaps comfort real live widows, people who have literally lost spouses. Father, would you draw near to those and to us of those who sometimes feel like you've abandoned us. And just to know for even just a moment that you're a good king, that you're a good king who loves us. Thank you for that. But we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.